You're listening to The Reconditioned Podcast, empowering people to take back ownership of their well-being. And today I was fortunate enough to catch up with former editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan, Elle and the Sunday Times style, Lorraine Candy, all about consciously raising teenagers and navigating midlife. So stay tuned. Your personality creates your personal reality. Authentic power is when your personality comes to serve the energy of your soul. The truth is the body is one ecosystem. You can get to the root cause and everything goes away. Welcome to the Reconditioned Podcast where I use my knowledge and expertise of over a decade in the wellness and transformation world to take a deep dive into what makes us thrive as humans. I'm Lauren Vacneen, leading wellness and transformation coach, and following my remission from the rheumatoid arthritis I'd had for 27 years that left me wheelchair-bound by the age of 18, I created a unique coaching combination, conflating physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual aspects of self to create true long-lasting well-being in all senses of the word. This podcast is one of the many free resources I've created to help you achieve the same. Whether you're suffering from chronic illness, raising children in a world of conflicting information, you're an entrepreneur wanting to step into your purpose, or you simply want to feel empowered and motivated to become the best version of yourself, join me along with expert guests as we uncover the most actionable and tangible ways to recondition ourselves back to wellness. This season of Reconditioned is sponsored by Block Blue Light, the world's leading supplier of blue and artificial light blocking products, including blue light glasses and blue blocking lighting solutions. Blue light blocking products aim to alleviate digital eye strain, improve sleep and optimize health through mitigating the harmful effects of artificial light from screens and modern lighting. For a 10% discount across the range, visit blockbluelight.co.uk and enter the code LAUREN10. Thank you to Block Blue Light. Lorraine Candy is a mother of four and an award-winning journalist with over a decade of experience writing about parenting in national newspapers and magazines, including columns with the Sunday Times Magazine and Daily Mail. She's also the co-host of the chart-topping lifestyle podcast, Postcards from Midlife, which features the stories of spirited midlife women and tackles parenting adolescents. Formerly the editor-in-chief of Sunday Times Style, Elle and Cosmopolitan, she's now focusing full-time on writing. Her book, Mum, What's Wrong With You? 101 Things Only the Mothers of Teenage Girls Know, is out in June 2021. So thank you so much for being here on this lovely spring thank morning. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you. You're so welcome. I know you've had a bit of a busy, uh, stressful morning. <laughs> it is busy today, very busy. <laughs> is that just life generally? With I think life is busy and... with children because it's unpredictable. And that's, you know, that's always the thing, as you know, about mothering. It's pretty unpredictable. So something can skew your day or knock you an hour behind. And, and I'm sort of out, an hour behind on the grooming front this morning as we right. just, <laughs> just managed to brush my hair. <laughs> Well, so the first thing I always like to start by asking is what you've done so far today to support your well-being. So have you had any time today to do that? 
No, it's annoying. I'm a real advocate of that, particularly in midlife when you've got kind of older parents, teenagers. I've got a nine year old as well and jobs and everything that, you know, when you say I can't find time for myself, that's, you know, it's not good when you can't find time for yourself. You should be Mm. able to do that. And I haven't really done anything. I tell you what I have done. I've made sure I drink a, a massive pint of water, which I make sure I do every morning when I get up so that I'm completely rehydrated and then I've just started taking turmeric actually and yeah vitamin d because I know that's very good as you get older as well so I do the vitamins and the pint of water and I always feel that that sort of helps set me up for the day but usually I like to have half an hour on my own in the morning before everyone's up to do a little bit of yoga sometimes or just to sort of sit in the garden with a a cup of tea but um, I didn't oh lovely yeah and and you're a big advocate of open water swimming as well aren't you I am yes I went yesterday for the first time in three months because obviously I'm in London and it's been we're landlocked so I can't get to the sea or rivers but all the Lido's have opened now so the outdoor Lido's so I was in there at 7am so I did do something for myself yesterday morning (laughs) Amazing. amazing 10 degrees it's very cold so I, I keep saying to my husband because he does the cold showers now and I we do both too. do yeah and we both do the Wim Hof breathing every day without fail I have this and I've actually tapped into it being a past life thing this fear of cold water and generally I'm a cold mm. person and it's my kind of last thing in my not last thing we're always on this growth journey right never ends but in terms of pushing through that comfort zone it's the yeah. last thing of all the things I wanted to do that I haven't yet been able to get myself to do so I think it's one of those the mindset thing cold water swimming I mean the community is very important to me I've met some amazing friends cold water swimming and nature being outside in nature is really my I like swimming in the sea mainly when I do cold water swimming and I don't wear a wetsuit I like to feel the water Mm. and see the wildlife in there but I think you've just you've just got to get in and get past that first minute of it being incredibly uncomfortable and some people can do that and some people can't and it takes a while I think once you've done it a few times I had a friend who was absolutely adamant that you will never get me I'm always cold she said you will never get me in that water and during lockdown she lives near the sea she started going in because a group of women were going in and now she's a complete convert and you could not have met a person she was very much this is something has frightened me I'll never be able to do it and now it's changed it does make you it's made my immune system very strong I think I mean there's a lot of research into it there's not definitive science around it yet but it makes you feel amazing for days afterwards it has a really significant effect I think on endorphins and I just feel great for two or three days afterwards it really did change my life yeah I I wouldn't ever say you'll never get me doing it I you know as an NLP practitioner as well I'm 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 really aware of the story we tell ourselves and how that plays a part yeah. in what you know the outcome so I'm never going to tell myself I'll never do it or you're never going to get me doing it but I'm yet to do it <laughs> I had uh, I don't know if you know Tony Riddle the lifestyle uh, the natural lifestyleist. Oh. he had him on the podcast and he is a massive fan of ice baths and you know yeah. he lives in Hampstead so he goes to Hampstead ponds oh. pretty much every day and yeah it's amazing I like to start to give context to what you do by asking about your upbringing and your background and how that impacted what you do today I don't really know I had a very normal upbringing in a very small village in Cornwall I grew up on the edge of Bodmin Moor uh, with my mum and dad my dad was a policeman and my sister younger sister who's two years younger than me I went to a very big comprehensive but I left school at 16 I, I left after my what was then O levels um, because I wanted to be a journalist and I wanted to work on the local newspaper I worked on the Cornish Times for as work experience over the summer and during school holidays and rather rapidly I realized I loved it and I applied for a training scheme in London and and got 
a place on a scheme in Wimbledon. I wrote hundreds of letters and then uh, got a scheme on the Wimbledon News, um, which I, I mean, I started that same week, I think, as Piers Morgan. We both started together on the oh, Wimbledon wow. paper. Lots of brilliant journalists have gone through the Wimbledon News, actually. And I was just incredibly lucky to have landed on one of the best papers to train on. And then at weekends, I would do work on and the national newspapers. You could go in and, and cover Saturdays and Sundays. So I think my upbringing was outdoorsy, very outdoorsy. We lived in a small bungalow on the edge of the moors, but we, because it was Cornwall, you could ride, you could swim, you could be at the beach. It was just incredibly active, I think, and I really enjoyed that. But I think when you come from a small place, you think anything is possible. <laughs> I think that's the, you know, I didn't question that I wouldn't get a place in on a training scheme I didn't I didn't really want to go to university I, I wanted to work so I think my parents were very can do they they allowed us to be incredibly independent which I think that generation I guess they call them boomer parents now I'm 52 now just allowed us to do what we wanted to do at no point did they say you can't drop out of school you can't you know I kind of look back on it now as a mother of teenage girls thinking teenage girls are a force of nature. So <laughs> they probably didn't have much choice. So I think that, you know, just their acceptance that I wanted to try things and that failure wasn't a problem. You could try something else or you could start again. I think that was a very good parenting mm. skill that they had. But, you know, we're not a kind of tight knit family. We don't speak a lot. We don't see each other. It's 300 miles. So it's quite a big gap. And I think because I left at 16, I came out of the family unit fairly early on in life but it's a lovely place to go back to and um, we have a house in Cornwall we go back a lot my children have grown up in in the summer they grow up in fairly similar circumstances to me we take them there for the holiday that's lovely I love that so you are raising teenage girls and your book is about teenage girls are all your four children girls no I have two girls who are 17 and 18 a 14 year old boy and a nine-year-old girl so I have three girls and a boy Wow. Okay. So you've spent quite a while, obviously, researching them now, aside from actually having your own. What's been the biggest takeaway in your research about teenage girls, kind of the most profound lesson, if you like? I think in the time that we are living in now, which really underlines the biggest thing I've learned is you have to listen to your teenagers Mm. you and I when I say listen I mean actively listen so there's a lot of you can be sympathetic and empathetic but you really have to listen to them without judgment or criticism because the way they view things is so very very different from the way we view things and we seem to be, I think this is part of the reason, as far as I was out yesterday, actually talking, we seem to be in a place where no one has listened to teenage girls for a very long mm. time. And we've mm. been educating them in a way that isn't suitable for them. We've been, they've been in schools where they've not felt safe. And, you know, it's, I'm not exaggerating that. And that's a kind of, the, you know, what's coming through on the news now, this, there's a huge amount of anxiety and eating disorders among teenage girls today. And it's the environment they're in that is contributing to that. And we're just not listening to them, I don't think, properly. We're not actively connecting with them we're telling them rather than um, listening and I think the other thing I learned which I had no idea is just this enormous amount of rapid change that the brain goes through between 12 and 19 and it's such a dismantling and rewiring of their neurology to kind of think that they would in any way behave as an adult would behave is, is to do them a huge injustice. It's impossible to be how we want them to be because everything is being rebuilt. And that's fairly new science around the brain, actually, the neurology. Um, and that's all teenagers. That's not just teenage girls. But I think the other thing that I learned, which I think is pertinent to probably what you know a lot about, is that the, the hormonal effect on them is the cycle of their periods is really it has a huge effect that we perhaps take for granted or expect them to just 
deal with we talked to Maisie Hill actually on Postcards from Midlife about this 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 cycle if you don't know the cycle if you're not tracking it and learning from it it's a bit like going through your day without your watch on and not knowing what the time is you just don't know what's going on or where you you are and that's something as a Gen X parent was a real eye opener for me it's a bit probably a little bit late for me to talk to my elder teens about it certainly my nine-year-old coming through it has a, a really strong effect I mean there's a lot of argument that girls shouldn't be doing exams um, just before their periods particularly girls who are really adversely affected so it's interesting I just don't think we're listening to them enough I'm I doubt you know if, if there's any mums listening and they've got sort of pre-teens really sit and don't sit down face to face with them they hate that that's, that's not one of them but you it's listening to them on walk as you're pottering about the kitchen making them teas it's it's listening to them when they come in after school or when they talk to you on Saturday mornings and sleep is very important to them I know a lot of parents who are furious about teenagers sleeping and banging up against doors and getting up and getting them up at 10 and it's just that's not fair that's just Mm. not good for their neurology or their circadian rhythm so a bit of give there would be good I have certainly found that in all the experts I've interviewed as I've relaxed around the girls we've had a better more relaxed relationship and also you're you know you're a person as well as a parent I think people forget that as well and you've got to be their main female role model in life is you and if you're not taking care of yourself or looking after yourself or interested in your own well-being then they won't learn to do that for themselves absolutely it's kind of that Glennon Doyle whole thing about you know what what we model to our children they're not going to listen to what we tell them to do if we're not doing the same they're going to do what we model for them and I'm also such a huge advocate for menstrual cycle awareness and charting and so glad I mean my daughter's only two and a half but so glad that I um read books like wild power and and red code and things like that early enough to I'm excited about that for her now whereas you know for me and, and our generations it was and, and it was always very open in my house. My house, you know, my parents were yeah. very open about things like that, but it was open, but without much conversation. So you've got your period, great. Here's a box of tampons. Good luck. Exactly. And that, no mental, you know, nothing else. No, you. Yeah. no, I got, I got a big mazel tov when my dad came back from work and I was mortified because my mum had told him and that was kind of it. I kind of retreated after that, never understood how the cycle was affecting yeah. me and every week but of the you cycle. you spent most of your teens being quite unwell so yeah it would have been difficult for you to track that within everything that was going on I guess for you it must have been quite as you know it's a hard time being a teenager but to be a teenager dealing with what you dealt with must have been very difficult I assume very and um yeah good point because it really especially kind of my my high school years were my best years from so my childhood was pretty up and down and then um, you kind of th- 12 to 16 I was okay well, like one flare up a year maybe but 17 was when it really hit mm. and 18 was when I, I was in the wheelchair and yeah there was no looking at what's my menstrual cycle doing and I got put on the pill because the arthritis was affecting all sorts of other things and so I had anemia and you know all of that so yeah no no kind of consciousness mm. around the cycle and I do I love that you said that because I think that's such a huge part of raising yeah girls massive part of it so what actually prompted you to write the book well I've been I wrote a, a fairly light-hearted column in um female in the daily mail for a long time and then I stopped doing that as the children got older and it was a little bit untenable for them while they were at school so I also then moved to work for the Sunday times and I was writing a more 
expert-led column um, and I was just interviewing so many people and thinking I didn't know that I had no idea about that and then lots of every time I was interacting with other mums and I was saying well that's because of her menstrual cycle or perhaps that's Mm -hmm. what you're not understanding is her neurology is slightly different so you can't possibly expect her to remember where she's put anything because she Mm -hmm. she she just physically can't because bits of her brain a (laughs) bit and people were saying oh I didn't know that I didn't know that and I could sense a a relaxation around the fear and worry around um, parenting teenagers and I just thought well if I put it all together and overlay it with some personal experiences it's not a book for women who are dealing with teenage daughters in extreme situations so it's not a book that is going to help you if you if you're really dealing with a severe eating disorder or or Mm. um, an anxiety disorder of some sort it's a it's a gentle comforting I hope book that will help you if you are just wondering what the hell because teenagers girls change so dramatically and you one minute you've got a 12 year old who you just think this is amazing we get on so well and then literally the next day you can wake up and she doesn't even want to be in the same room as you and that's not her Mm -hmm. fault or your fault and also I think we had I just got a sense that we were lumping everyone together when we say teenagers and actually there's a really incredible book called the dandelion and the orchid um by Mm -hmm. a clinician called Thomas Boyce and it's very much about um different types um, of children and some children it, it, it kind of sums it up because he, he deals with it he people would come into him and say I just don't know what to do with this one I've been parenting in the same way as I'm parenting the other ones why is this not working I don't understand and it's because they're very different the, the nature has created a, a different each child's different certainly what works for my 70 year old will not work for my 18 year old they have a different sense of humor they have a different way of dealing you know feelings are much stronger in one than the other one is much more affected by being in big crowds and doing so it's just you have to parent each child differently it's like moving with them with in the wind with them yeah trying to kind of overlay very strict rules and structure isn't going to work for one may work for the other so it's it was I just thought it was worth pointing putting all these things together and, and pointing out via my own experience um what day-to-day life could be in a normal ordinary family not those dealing with more extreme circumstances mm. and did anything come up for you when you were writing the book that you maybe hadn't acknowledged beforehand or didn't know about beforehand that your research brought up or that it, it changed the way you were parenting yeah I think a lot of my parenting did change as I wrote the book because I became much more patient as I understood the causes for some of the behavior or the I guess we say behavior but what we mean is the developmental stage of our girls so they they develop all at different stages and I think I also learned to withdraw from the this continual comparison mums still have with each other well one daughter is doing this why is my daughter not doing that right yeah to step back away from that and realize that each child is so different I mean it sounds obvious but I think you have to make a very specific conscious decisions around each child and and also to remember that which is part you know the book is also about midlife you know is my hormones I'm went through the perimenopause as I changed dramatically she was changing my eldest was changing dramatically and that is a convert a perfect storm that could be a terrible place to live um, you know the two of you unless you're both aware of it and doing something about it so I learned a lot about that as well <laughs> I mean I think a lot of mums don't forgive themselves just that you know you can't be the perfect parent all the way through a huge drop in your estrogen testosterone and progesterone you just you can't you're going to make mistakes and yeah. do things that you feel are not the best 
best of you and I think I learned a little bit about forgiving myself for that and hopefully this book gives permission other women permission to take care of themselves a bit more you you're not going to get it right and there's going to be you know conflict and confrontation and also to look back at your own patterns and you know where you've been as, as how you've been parented you why things make you feel the way they do why you get so cross about certain things and mm. You know, I mean, I, I'm not doing it alone. I'm doing it with my husband. So it's, you know, it's difficult, I think, for all parents in all different situations to, to get it right without it being, you know, I, I think we sometimes overthink it as well. We're just every day is a new day. So we yeah. can start again. But I love, I love both facets of that being conscious. I think we're, we're never going to get anything right. Like you, we can't get everything right. There is no way. But just being conscious of how you're doing it and actually you know, my husband and I've started doing this thing where every night we kind of run through our day we kind of like offload our day but we also offload our parenting and, and, yeah. and say okay what could we have done better today because our five-year-old is super challenging and in many ways so he's amazing but he's super challenging and we find it all the thing the ways that I thought I was going to parent him with you know the whole conscious parenting approach and you know that a lot of my conscious parenting friends are able to do I look at them and go okay great I'm not managing that because he whereas my daughter's much more he's she's much less challenging even than he was at that age um so I think it's just yeah like you say being conscious of what you're doing just having that awareness and I'm sure you find this you're I feel that some parents feel there is a right way to do things that there just isn't because your child is such a unique genetic pattern, unlike any other child in the world. So there is no rule book that will fit your child because no no one, someone would have to write that taking into account your, how you were parented and how your husband was parented. So, you know, how you feel about certain things and your son's behavior may not be how I would feel about his behavior because I might not be reflecting patterns that you're reflecting you know things that might be making you feel like you're struggling might someone else might feel like this is not a struggle at all because they don't have those trigger points um, within them so you can't be doing it wrong because you're you're both learning (laughs) that's that's the thing I think the the thing of listening to them even when they're little Philippa Perry's book is particularly good for parents of young um, children that kind of feeling with not dealing with so not judging yourself about how you're dealing with it as well because that's very unhelpful and unkind to yourself mm. and feeling you're not not seeing whether his behavior is right or wrong or it's just his behavior you know that's yeah. just the way he he is that's the kind of, I also think there's a real reluctance to set boundaries as well because we've overthought sometimes looking back on parenting trends and I've done a lot of that for the book we there has been a massive attachment trend, um, which I think was quite unhelpful for children because it means it's, it, it's masked actually as a control. It's controlling. It's not attachment at all. It's, it's, it's sold as attachment. I'm having this consistent attachment to her, but it's actually I'm completely in control of my child. And that's really unhealthy, I think, um, for everybody. As Glennon Doyle says, kids can do hard things. They are incredibly resilient. I think there will be a lot of research after the pandemic to reveal how resilient children are. But they are less resilient if you do everything for them or if if your happiness is dependent on them. And that a a child can really feel it if they think they need to make you happy. That's an enormous responsibility for a small child. And that's one of the things I noticed in my parenting that I, you know, I cut 
and the phrasing and the language around oh that makes me so happy thank you for doing that for me that's very unhelpful to a child (laughs) they then take it on board as they are responsible for your happiness you've got to be a person as well so they should be responsible for their own happiness and that does make them much more resilient as they grow they learn the skills in a way they might not have done before and this attachment theory was I think quite unhelpful um, Mm. for parents yeah I mean I've been around friends you know because within sort of the natural health community Mm. around lots of people you know like that and I've been around friends of you know mothers who are following the attachment um, Mm. technique and if they move out the same room as their children and their children are say in the playroom and they move their children just don't know how to manage that because they've never left them well they've and I was, they're then leaving their children with a new set of emotions it's very hard right. for a child to manage all on its own right so and overwhelming influx of emotions the neurology is suddenly changing because they're not used to something so they get the more they get used to it the more they can deal with it yeah themselves I'm remember that wonderful New York Times story that um I wrote a piece about where a woman, uh, her 18-year-old daughter had gone to college and she'd rung the college canteen in advance and said, my daughter doesn't like it when sauce touches her vegetables. (laughs) So that's kind of the extreme end of attachment parenting. But that's not attachment, is it? That's controlling what your child eats. Um, And I don't know how that affects a dynamic in a relationship. But again, you know, I think it's very good to connect with uh, um, children. And I think... One of the things I do point out in the book is just being there is Mm. enough sometimes, just being in the room. And sometimes we're so busy, we get home. I mean, I worked um, a nine-day fortnight, then a four-day week as a parent, and we had wonderful uh, nannies and other childcare for our children. But I would get home and be in a rush, and I would be in a constant rush. Have you done this? Shall we do this? And then I would be in a rush to fill their weekends with things. I would be in a rush to spend one-to-one time with them. And actually, sometimes... I look back and I think I could have just been in the room that would have been enough and that's that's a lovely form of attachment for children of all ages even teenagers when they can't stand the sight of you if you are just in the periphery not demanding anything of them they know that you're there and I think that's a very Mm. lovely thing for them yeah I agree and I I, because I always if my son's playing on his own and sometimes I think well you know I'm I'm here now I'm not working I I can be with him I don't I just yeah I just stand back and just wait and then he'll go do you want to play with me mummy and at that point I will but sometimes they also need for their developmental you know know, for the imaginary play the imaginative play they need that time to do that on their own yeah I just kind of love everything you've touched on there it is just kind of giving them the space to be who they are and accepting that and yeah just being being there it's just something we need to do more of yeah we do I think we do I think western parents perhaps are very used to being in on a constant hamster wheel and rushing I Steve Bidolph who writes amazing books about uh raising boys and girls yeah yeah was uh, I did a huge interview with him over several days um around this and his main piece of it you know he was very very worried about how busy we are as parents and how structured we want our children to be and how much value we put in their academic success and how much value we put in what they look like and their appearance Mm. and he he was really asking us all to take a step back to a kind of quieter time um, where we didn't feel like we had to do any one form of parenting with our children that they were allowed to grow in the space on their own and they were allowed to go out into nature on their own and, and do dangerous things I do think kids need to do 
dangerous things that's one of the big worries with teenagers you know you let them out and yeah. the ripple effect of them doing dangerous things is big so you become very tense around it I think and mm. actually they they do have to go out and do dangerous things and it's Absolutely. not your nothing yeah. to do with you and that's very hard I think for parents who've been very attached for a long time to then let them go off and, and do that and where there is a value exchange of you make me happy as well yeah I mean I see that with my son my my kids are both really active kids they're both like climbers by nature you know they're just they'll just climb on anything and because my husband and I never stopped that we just kind of let them do their thing they've really developed their gross motor skills and I often notice it along when when Braxton's alongside friends of his age that are kind of scared or, and sometimes he'll fall off and he'll really hurt himself but he's learned resilience through that you know yeah. so I think yeah. uh well it, but learning as, that stuff hurts is good for, yeah know. absolutely <laughs> we have you know that the, the whole we yeah. have to go through the whole spectrum of human emotions but as te- like you say with teenagers kind of the stakes are higher when they're doing dangerous yeah things. and I think when they learn things they then have to process time to process that and those feelings and what hurts and what doesn't and what was hard and what wasn't and actually some children can deal with that and then other children I might look at what one of my daughters and thinks that was a really hard lesson for her to learn it hasn't made her more resilient it's made her more fragile she's Mm. not something she can deal with and maybe we won't be in these situations again you're just clocking the information all the time while you're kind of and also I think this sense that we're molding we're not molding anything these are human beings that are growing themselves we're just a boundary to push against and a wall to tell them what's right and wrong and something to watch and role model but we're not molding them at all there's no kind of creating the perfect child <laughs> I spoke yeah. to a lot of therapists who had dealt with a lot of um teenagers who felt unbearable pressure from their parents to be something they weren't um and I think that's very sad when that happens and it can happen accidentally I don't blame any parents for any of the situations because we just don't know we're all learning at the same time aren't we but um yeah molding your child into something is you know and and overlaying them with labels and what you feel they're going to be you just don't know because they get to certain ages and they totally change I mean I have spent a lot of time with parents who've been who say oh my child is so into gymnastics so into this so into that and then they get to 12 or 13 and they have no interest whatsoever and parents are incredibly disappointed and they don't know how to where to put the energy they've been pushing into that (laughs) and it's quite hard to navigate through the the teenage They, they you just don't know your teenagers either they have a separate private life which they should have because they're separated yeah you can't possibly say Again, I, I get a lot of parents saying, oh, I'm, I'm so lucky my teenagers have never touched drugs or alcohol. I'm so lucky my teenager, she's not, doesn't seem really interested in boys or doesn't seem interested in girls. And I think, how do you know? Yeah, so <laughs> true. My mum had no clue what I was up to. Private. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they're not telling you. And anyone who says we're best friends and she tells me anything, that really rings the most huge alarm bells for me because that's really not normal. <laughs> Yeah, well, I remember when I wrote my book, I I had to sit down with my mum and say, listen, there's some stuff in this book that you don't know that happened. And it was really a serious discussion because she had to know about all the drugs and all the situations and all the horrible things that happened. 
And it was a major revelation for her. Also because she thought apart from that, this one stage in my life where she knew I was a bit of a monster, because listen, I was dealing with, you know, going into a raging illness as well. So that was my way of rebelling. And there was no conversation around that. So I didn't know how to manage that. But before that, I was always kind of the model child, the one who behaved, whereas my sister wasn't. And in the end, it was me who was getting up to all the mischief and my sister really wasn't. You don't so, know your teenagers. You no, really absolutely. And that's good. It's a good thing. You've got, they've got to form their own identity away from their parents. Yeah. I listened to um, Jessie Burton on Elizabeth Day's podcast and she was saying that her, um, life, her life was so affected by, because she was such a good student, when she left school, she literally didn't know how to function because all her all the praise she got was based on her scholastic yeah. ability. So when she left and there was, there was no school or there was no university, she didn't know where her value was. It's very and hard. Exactly. That's um, Steve Rudolph told me that he just treated a lot of families where um, particularly daughters actually had felt the, the, the intense stress of academic achievement, even if their parents hadn't pushed them. They felt that their sense of love came back in form of academic achievement or winning things generally or being in that kind of zone. And he said it's really hard for them because once once school ends and academic achievements or they don't achieve it, they they have a value system that sets up for them to be so disappointed in themselves in almost any other area um, of life. And I'm really hoping, actually, that the pandemic will have removed this intense um, exam pressure from parents to their teenage students because it's and, and I hope we reevaluate the whole exam system I'm personally oh, so do I. Go to school far too early in this country as well absolutely we are the only country who send our children to school at four years old and it's quite yeah, frankly it's, it's just and I think there will be a proliferation of more understanding around I actually think there'll be more understanding around neurodiversity as well because mm. so many children don't fit into the very specific way we school them. And, and actually within the workplace, I know just this, I've worked with lots of people who aren't quite right in, in how the workplace views them and the way they work, but I've viewed them as kind of mini geniuses actually and very creative people, but they just don't fit in that nine to five no. structure. It isn't healthy for them because they're, they're neurodiverse, they're different people. They're, they yeah. don't work in what we would classify as the more traditional normal way. And I think that I'm hoping there'll be a lot more understanding around that and that we won't immediately default to kind of diagnoses of anxiety disorders and things like that. We'll be looking at, it's not what's wrong with your child or your teenager, it's what's wrong with the environment we've placed around them. They don't maybe fit into that environment or work well in that environment. And I'm hoping there'll be a much more bigger thought process around people as individuals. I love that. I, I'm I'm such a huge advocate for that. There's a bit because... of work being done, I think, in more forward-thinking industries. And certainly um, the music industry is much more forward-thinking around dealing mm. with more neurodiverse um, employees. Yeah. And it's so needed because, like you said, I think also now it is becoming a little bit more heard about with things like human design and Myers-Briggs and all that stuff. When you kind of get to know your personality type and you can live out of that authenticity and this is me and I'm okay with that because I know that that's a thing almost, you know, like it's okay to be that. And the more the rest of us understand that as well and everyone else around you understands that everyone is entitled to operate in the way that it suits their own well, authenticity. If you're a parent, that would be helpful, I think, for teenagers. You know? Yeah. I did a, a, when I did a, I did Radio 5 Live yesterday, actually, and 
someone had sent in a comment saying, oh, it's, you know, the, the issues we're encountering because of this awful music that teenagers listen to with dreadful lyrics. And, and it, I just thought, that's just, it's such an awful way to view teenagers to think that they're to patronize them in such a way that they are affected by lyric you know to cut it's just that this our very old-fashioned view of teenagers is so wrong in in many ways in the way they're developing and changing we don't ever seem to sort of sit with them and say what is affecting you because when you talk to teenage girls they uh, gen z is so on it with their activism, their belief yeah. in, in protecting the planet. They're just, they're a kind of magnificent generation, slightly clearing up our mess, I, I kind of feel. And they're just not having it. And they won't, they don't want to listen to us telling them what to do or the way we, we educate them around sex and relationships in schools. The, the, we need to be getting that back from them now and being informed by, by them and taking them seriously. Um, I think it's just, it's quite... It's a bit depressing, the anxiety that everyone is, is facing, but it's also quite uplifting that there's a huge group of brilliant young women coming through who are really clever and intelligent and educated around how to make everything better for everyone else. I agree. I'd love to read that Steve Bidoff um, interview, because I, I actually recently finished reading um, Raising Boys. Oh, it's in, the, it's in the Sunday Times. So I wrote it um, two years ago, three years ago. He was really... I was, he unnerved me. He interviewed, he, well, he therapized, I suppose the Americans would say me, which was brilliant and changed my thinking around yeah. um, how I bring up my girls. It's a really good, I'll send you the link actually. Yeah, that would be fair. So let's get on to midlife because I know we don't yes. have that much time. Um, and the podcast, which is such an enjoyable listen and very refreshing <laughs> as well. What was the objective behind the podcast? Well, uh, I do the podcast with Trish Halpern. So she used to edit Marie Claire in style um, red magazine. So between us, we've just edited... those small publications. Well, then. I edited Cosmo L sometimes. <laughs> yeah, no. but between us, we've edited nearly all the big ones. So um, no. we know this audience really, really well. This is a Gen X audience that has been our readers through all the magazines that we've edited. And what we didn't understand about five, six years ago was what we were going through physically. Um, you know, we both went through massive physical and mental changes. And, and as we did, we're journalists, so we investigated all of that. We realised that no one was really talking about it. It was, you know, to say the word perimenopause or menopause out loud was incredibly mm. negative. And I know that from my own work in newsrooms where to even mention that subject, it, nobody wanted it in the paper mm. at all. So we thought we would talk about it as a podcast. Um, and we just started recording these podcasts. And, and we know loads of midlife women, so sort of celebrities and kind of quite famous women. And we know the experts. So we thought we'll just get them on and talk about it. But we'll keep it lighthearted and mm. make it a community discussion rather than preaching at people and telling them um, what we know we'll just try and engage back and forth with people who set up a Facebook group it's been really successful um, we, we do Instagram lives but Postcards from Midlife has I think in 38 episodes we'd had one point something million downloads so wow. it, it's really struck a chord I think and it was before there's now about three or four brilliant midlife podcasts but we came out first and I think we struck a chord with a, a group of women who were navigating an area of life they didn't know about and you know there was any giant misinformation around HRT um, and this ridiculous binary argument around natural versus HRT that's you know it is we would normally um, in olden times have died around the menopause time so we're dealing with an a new phenomenon of living a lot longer with less um, hormones. You, you would take hormones for almost any other ailment that cause such severe 
problems as um, lack of estrogen and testosterone and progesterone does. So why not? Why would you not take it now? There's been a lot of really bad wrong surveys all of which have been corrected but the media hasn't caught up with that the gps haven't caught up with that and there's going to be a channel 4 documentary in a few weeks time about the scandal and it is a really big scandal because you know we've had really desperate women contact us and then once they've gone to their gp and got hrt they've been better within two or three weeks so it's not right for everybody but to not know about it and to not be offered it is wrong and to be offered antidepressants which is what happens in the majority of cases is wrong um, for women it sets you down a path that is really unhelpful for you um, mentally and physically yeah absolutely um yeah it's like with anything you know having having both sides and understanding yeah. what options you have and making a choice you know, from together. a place of informed choice um, yeah you have to make a lot of holistic lifestyle changes I think as you hit midlife and your body goes through quite dramatic and your brain goes through a complete restructuring as well it happens in teenage mm -hmm. it happens in midlife to women so because estrogen is in every part of your body it's it's the petrol for women and once it starts to disappear everything starts to go wrong it's like a car suddenly falling apart if you replace it or change your lifestyle so that you can work better with the lack of it then you can feel better. Um, you know, we we interviewed Dr. Louise Newson, who's a leading menopause expert, probably the country's leading menopause expert as a GP, frontline GP. Um, and she had set up her practice because a woman had come to her with her suicide note in her bag. She had been get she had been sectioned, she had been through wow. so many traumatic experiences within six weeks of HRT her life had completely changed but she had been refused this at all points because through a terrible unlucky series of misdiagnosis and it's in a very extreme story and and not common but it really made Trish and I think that it's so and we've had such lovely letters and emails from people saying oh my gosh I was going to give up my job until I listened to your podcast I'm not going mad wow. I just really understand what I'm going through so now it's different and I can change my life. So there's lots of ways of changing your life for the better in midlife if you're going through these problems. Some women don't experience it. And I would have to say hot flushes is the least of your worries. It's a very, it's not a symptom that all women experience. There's something like 45 perimenopause symptoms. Um, and there's no one test for it. You know, it's just, it affects every part of your body. So if we can just swing the dial a little bit and give women the right information, then via a podcast which is an easy listen and we try to make it fun mm. and I'm hoping we're doing something good yeah and so you you touched on holistic lifestyle choices to add to mm. that what what sort of holistic lifestyle choices would you recommend well, stress is an enormous effect on women um in midlife but um the reduction of alcohol and sugar has, has made a real difference the inclusion mm. of um you got to look at what your body needs. Um, so the inclusion of supplements like omega-3 fish oils mm -hmm. and magnesium, vitamin D. Um, and Liz Earle actually is an incredible source of nutritional mm -hmm. information. And Jane Clark, actually both have been had on, uh, well, had Jane on the program. But uh, also I think sleep makes a real difference. Um, hot flush is something you need treated medically there's not there's nothing that you can do about that holistically <laughs> that's a kind of it's a symptom um, I think you have to write down your symptoms and track your symptoms and work out what makes a difference it's a little bit of trial um, and error I think um, but there are a lot you know a lot of women don't know their menstrual cycle a lot of women are suffering from other problems that start as they um, get older internally so you've, you've just got to really investigate what's going on I don't think you can there's not a math there's not an instant holistic 
way of solving all of those problems you do need medical intervention in my opinion and certainly in Trish's opinion and, and in the opinion of the experts we spoke to but there's I think Maisie Hill's book Perimenopause Power is really good because it does really talk about the lifestyle changes you can make um yoga has been phenomenally successful for me but it's really about breathing um that's been the, the moment uh, big change for me around breath yeah. work um, very helpful those are some of the changes you can make yeah so what is what's considered midlife what age are we talking well I think we're <clears throat> talking about 40 plus actually right but okay these amazing women who are you know in the uh, we had to have had a couple of guests who were early 60s and that still now feels like midlife to me in a way I suppose we yeah. say midlife because if you say menopausal or perimenopausal, it feels like a medical diagnosis. And women seem yeah. very uncomfortable with that word. And society seems a little uncomfortable. We're trying to change that. But I think, yeah, it's really about, as you know, we said stress is so, so, has such a massive impact on women at this stage of life because there's so much in your life going on. You know, and part of the perimenopause symptoms is this giant rage that women feel. They And that's not just physical. I think that's kind of we've had enough we can't do it Absolutely. all anymore yeah <laughs> take some time out for um ourselves and we need to yeah. sort of say to our partners you need to help more you need to do more you need to be around more we need to say to our families you need to support us more and our bosses you you need to give us time we need flexibility around how we feel and mm-hmm. you know brain fog is an incredibly common symptom this is a medical symptom because of the way the estrogen um, disappears from the brain and that can be resolved but it's a it's also you have to change the way you're thinking you have to slow down because if you're doing everything at speed you are going to forget stuff that you wouldn't have forgotten I used to between the ages of 30 and 40 be able to keep everything in my head I knew exactly where every single one of my children was I knew exactly where we were in the going to press with the magazines you know and I was on a weekly so I knew all of that and keep it in my head now I find I wouldn't be able to do that I just at this age with this physiology I just wouldn't be able to do it so yeah I would manage my time better to to not do other things so I could do that so I think that's and you know it happens to men as well there is a decrease in hormones for men as well. and testosterone is a cognitive uh, helpful for cognitive thinking and that disappears so I'm glad you've touched on on men because I wonder what your experience is with marriage in midlife because mm. I, I I've heard this this thing and 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 it rings quite true for me that you know because I've, I've seen it a lot that we women kind of hit around the 40 mark and then that's the, the time they're most likely to have an affair because the kids aren't that young anymore they're starting to kind of get their bodies back and feel stuff about themselves and realize they've been undervalued and go and look for something else so I wonder how how you think midlife affect marriage yeah we have a lot of talk about this obviously on our um Facebook group but it's I, I think it's a sort of it's it's an awakening midlife as well so you people take a step forward and look around them and think is this what I really want certainly as you get to 40 and you realize you have got less time left probably than you've had you think so now therefore everything is really important every decision I make is a long-term decision I don't think you ever think about what you're going to be at 40 when you're 30 you don't plan that whereas when you get to 40 you do start planning what do I want to do when I'm 50 I mean also the other 
terrible statistic is the majority of suicides in women are late 40s early 50s so this is definitely linked to menopause and perimenopause and the low mood that is prevalent and probably one of the most debilitating symptoms so it is a time to take stock in life so I think the marriage becomes part of that you know what next and also there's the empty nest situation as well as in a lot of women have had children a little bit earlier perhaps and then their children are leaving home you know my 18 year old left home last year so if I'd had an 18 70 year old it'd be next year I would have no no children at home with me so do I want to be in London do I want to be I think people women reassess um, and they're a bit cross at this point in life so they reassess through the lens of it's got to be about me now Mm, yeah very interesting so it's a really interesting time in a woman's life (laughs) so before I wrap up the show I do a little thing called all about you which is a series of quick fire questions to get the listener uh, to know you a bit better so fill in the blank wellness is rest great the driving force that gets you out of bed every morning regardless of whether you get paid I've never worried about that I just get up thinking I'm just so lucky (laughs) I just think every morning I think I'm you know it sounds very trite doesn't it I feel lucky and grateful and I'm just boundlessly enthusiastic about a new day (laughs) just to think you know it could be my last day so I will be make the most of it that's beautiful I love that um the thing you miss least about being a magazine editor Oh, gosh, the stress of having to deliver a massive multi-million pound advertising budget every month. (laughs) Wow, yeah. The most interesting person you met. Oh, my God. I don't know. I tend to... Do you know what? It's always someone I've recently met. I met this amazing girl yesterday who's 19 who set up a campaign on Instagram for other young women to come forward with their stories of abuse in schools and she was just she just blew my mind her intelligence was so extraordinary and she was just so able to talk this out and say things in a very modern to the point clever way that I can't imagine anyone disagreeing with her and I just thought wow she's probably the most impressive person I've met in the last 10 years wow do you know what her account is and I've met I have met every you know I've interviewed Oprah I've met hundreds and hundreds of famous people and people who've made significant changes but um Ava she it's on my Instagram account Lorraine Candy. okay we'll get that we'll link it in the she's show just, she was just I just thought wow amazing a book that changed your life well, the book that changed my life, actually, was Terra Incognita. Sarah Wheeler wrote it. It's a book about Antarctica. And the I'm f- fascinated by um, the explorers who first went to the frozen continent. I love anything cold, as you may know. <laughs> and um, I read it and became, it was like a stone in my shoe. I became obsessed. So I took six weeks off with my husband. We went on a sabbatical and we went on a geography ship mapping the coastline of Antarctica. So we went. To wow. Yeah, it was a working ship. It wasn't a kind of a cruise ship or a tourist ship. It was, you know, we had to sleep strapped into our beds at night. It was just I, I, I scratched the itch after I read that book and it totally changed my life because it made me think, you know, anything is possible. Anything is possible if you really apply yourself. Wow. That really is an experience that would have it kind was of changed extraordinary. Your life we la- well, yeah. we landed on a piece of land that no human had ever landed on before because we were tracking the changing coastline. This is 20 years ago. Um, and they named it after the um, captain of our ship so wow. uh, we feel Kle- Klepnikov Bay so if you see that on the maps of Antarctica we were the first people to stand on it that's amazing yeah wow yeah. amazing what a lovely note to end on well thank you so much there's just so, so much value in this episode so I really appreciate you being thank here you. and 
I will link everything about the book in the show notes and I'm really excited to read it. Thank you. Have a lovely day. You too. Take care. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much for choosing to listen to Recondition today. I'd be so grateful if you could subscribe and maybe even leave a review if you enjoyed this episode. And better still, if you could share with friends and family who could benefit from the content, that's what I'd really love. I just want us to share the love so that everyone can understand how to use an integrative approach to life and health. For more free resources, visit laurenvacneen.co.uk and laurenvacneencoaching.com.